Insights to Live By, the podcast, discovering new pearls of wisdom to enrich our lives. What does it take to transform an organization? And what about organizations have changed? And what about organizations still need to change? Hello and welcome to Insights to Live By. I am your host, Matt Zinman. So thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much for joining in. We have a very informative conversation ahead of us. You might be guessing it has to do with organizational change. Maybe. But he is a trend tracker, a trend setter, and a leading voice in the world of work. He is the founder and CEO of Bento HR, Matt Burns. Welcome to the show. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Well, we... we <laughs> We uh, release on Wednesdays, but today is Friday. Happy Wednesday. Happy happy Wednesday. I don't know what day it is. Any day of the week, quite honestly. They all run into one another. And Matt, as an entrepreneur, I know you can relate. Uh, mm. You have, uh, in, in fact, been uh, across the spectrum of work. You were in the large corporate environment. I think you were heading up a huge team in Canada for a small company called Walmart. And, yep. uh, and, and now you are uh, leading the charge with your own consultancy with Bento. So what, what do you like doing more? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> it depends if it's Wednesday or Friday. <laughs> it's Wednesday. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Wednesday, yes. I like the flexibility of Bento. Friday, I like the paycheck regularity of being in a big corporate environment. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's been a lot of fun, honestly. And it's been an incredible learning journey. I like a lot of people who've made the transition from the corporate world into their own businesses, uh, underestimated the transition that would be. A lot of the skills that I had developed in the corporate world, running meetings, moving agendas forward, uh, liaising with stakeholders and, and driving transformational change aren't as applicable when you look to your left and you look to your right and there isn't a big team around you. So having to shift that was a really cool experience. And you know, I appreciate the flexibility that the entrepreneurship life cycle provides for me, right. but I'd be lying, Matt, if I didn't say it's actually a lot of cases more work. Oh, no, I can absolutely relate. Uh, I was never in a big corporation myself, but certainly uh, started my career in other areas. I've been uh, you know, at the entrepreneur game for some time. There's some kicking mm. and scratching along the way. There's no doubt about it. But you know, the freedom and the flexibility uh, is... Uh, very important. Now, in a personal life, you you have a family, right? You, I don't. don't no. no. Okay. No. Um, my family is my business. Your family is family. your business. Yeah, I, yeah. I I know that well as well. But the challenges of entrepreneurship uh, are are never ending, and, and yet the, yeah. the the fight for freedom is really where uh, you know where it always reminds me is uh, is worth the Wednesdays over the Fridays. Agreed. If you will. Agreed. So yeah. now, Matt, one of the things with Bento, and we'll certainly get into a number of areas, and you know, you being a leader in human resources and the surrounding uh, uh, professions, if you will, um, track trends. And, and you put out uh, now your second annual uh, set of work trends, and, and there's a lot yeah. to get into. It's like, well, what are we, 
what do we want to home in on among them all? Because there has been mm. such and continues to be such a, a, a titanic shift. Um, I, 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 I wonder, you know, you have it in like a top 10 list and wellness has a competitive advantage, high-performing cultures. That's certainly a, a, a strong area where, where I concentrate in and around, so I'd love that to be at the heart of the conversation. But you also, in referencing your work at Bento, you uh, talk about being at the, the intersection of strategy, technology, people, operations, um, all around creating value creation um, what does that mean? Good question. It sounds great. <laughs> it's, it sounds great. Um, your, te well, well, your technology, for one, let's go there, right? Because yeah. you're a leading voice in the technology uh, area, and certainly there has to be a lot of changes with it in supporting the shift that's going on. Um, what's keeping you busy, and what are you seeing keeping others busy in that space? Well, I think the the... The phrasing around the intersection of people, operations, technology, and um, you know, ultimately, uh, strategy is intentional. And I say that because working in large businesses, I was often in siloed environments where I'd work inside of HR, inside of operations, inside of marketing. And while I would liaise and collaborate with other cross-functional partners, it was very much in those big businesses, a functional-centric point of view. We looked after ourselves first, we developed our own budget, we had our own roadmap, we had our own game plan, and there were certainly agendas, as there would be in any organization where there's siloed functions. As I've stepped away from that corporate world, I've gained a greater appreciation of having a flat structure, of blending those disciplines to provide a greater value to the people that we work with. Now, I worked a lot in transformational projects in the corporate world, so out of necessity, I was meeting with my cross-functional partners daily. You couldn't do a restructuring. You couldn't do an M&A activity. You couldn't lead a digital transformation without talking to your friends in IT and marketing and operations and finance, go on and on. Right. So when we look at technology today and what's happening, my dirty little secret, Matt, I'm not a technologist. Like I don't write code. I'm not a data scientist. I'm an integrator. I'm a translator. So what I do is I work with individuals and clients and determine what are the problem statements in their organizations? What's keeping them up at night? What are some of the constraints that are holding them back from growth or retention of their employees or engagement and wellness? And then we look at, among other things, their technologies to establish, are they helping or are they hurting? And in a lot of cases, it's a bit of both. And even in this post-pandemic world where organizations made significant investments in the technology stacks, it won't surprise you to hear that in some cases, those were reactionary measures. People jumped quickly, grabbed the corporate credit card, bought a software without real appreciation of what it would take to integrate that software into an organization right. and how that software would actually work with the human beings who needed to operate it. So, you know, anybody who's been in digital transformation for longer than a minute will tell you that the challenges with digital transformation projects aren't technology related. They're people related. Right. It's, the, it's the shift of culture. It's the shift of leaders. It's the shift of ways of working that ultimately is the majority of the work. So by looking at technology as the impetus for it, it provides a real clear signal to the organization in terms of what we're doing. But the real work exists when we sit down with the people, we have those conversations and work towards those solutions.
Right. And you, and you, you really cover in your trends a number of factors in and around this digital transformation. And one of the things that comes straight to mind, and it, it's top of, of mind in the news, in and around Elon Musk, and his uh, demand mm. for workers to you know come in nine to five, you know, very patriarchal or dictatorial, whatever you want to call it. And uh, I think most uh, companies and even any number of his uh, soon to be former employees, uh, that's not going to fly. And yet at the same time, you uh, refer to some of the challenges in and around uh, people working at home and keeping them accountable. And then the lines blurring, if I have this right, around privacy, around, you know, how how do you strike that balance um, either as an employer or as an employee? It's really hard. Uh, each week I meet with a friend of mine, Chris Rainey. We do a LinkedIn live stream Fridays just before actually our conversation today. And the last two topics were Elon Musk. That was last week. And this, and this week was legislation being introduced in Ontario that asked that employers introduce policies around the right to disconnect. So there's this real interesting conversation around productivity and engagement and workplace culture. So it is a tough line to walk. And here's what I'll say. Organizations need to be clear about the path that they choose. So while I don't necessarily agree with Tesla's approach to remote work in that they don't like it in most cases, I do appreciate the transparency so that as a candidate, I can decide, is this the opportunity for me or not? As an employee, I can decide this is the opportunity for me or not. And I'm sure, Matt, you've seen examples as I have of people leaving Tesla over the last several weeks, putting their postings up on LinkedIn and referencing a policy shift in the organization as an impetus for them to leave. So I think in that sense, I'll give Elon and Tesla kudos in being very blunt, very direct, very transparent. Here's the counterbalance. During the pandemic, we saw time and time again that hours of work actually elongated. People worked more in the pandemic than they did in their corporate environments. And it was made more challenging because they were working in a lot of cases in less than ideal circumstances. I talked to a lot of people who were in bathrooms, kids in the background, dogs on the screen and like colloquial and fun. And I also have empathy for those individuals because it breaks concentration. It can be embarrassing. And while I think we've evolved to a place where those things aren't quite career limiting moves as they maybe once were, I do appreciate that it's less than ideal if you're sharing a Wi-Fi connection and moving around your house five times a day, because your spouse also needs the desk or needs access to the router or things of that nature. So that is one consideration. Second consideration is that most organizations that I spoke to didn't see any productivity decreases. So despite the fact that people weren't under the watchful eye of their leaders in the, or in the office of the organization, their productivity didn't actually deteriorate. In some cases, it may have increased, and it forced organizations to acknowledge what's been happening for as long as I've been in the corporate world. There's always been somebody who dials into the call. There's always been somebody who takes a meeting remotely. And the reality is before the pandemic, that was a very second-class experience by that individual. If you've ever been on a conference call and the one person who's not in the room and you're dialing in, it's like a special kind of torture that I don't recommend anybody experiences because it's just like, you feel like you're out of the circle. You hear laughing, you hear chatter, and sometimes you want to contribute, but you get drowned out. You don't really know what's going on. You're missing the nuance and the body language and the connection opportunities. It's not ideal in all cases to be working from home. That being said, the flexibility afforded by it is a competitive advantage for organizations looking to attract top talent. And in this organization, in this economic landscape that we're operating in right now, the talent pool is shrinking. 
Like we need to, we need to put a point on that. The amount of available talent to fill roles, especially knowledge-based roles is declining every single year as a generational shift that we've been predicting for 15 years comes to fruition. Baby boomers are cashing out, they're retiring in some cases early, and they're leaving behind vacancies that cannot be filled because there's just not enough people coming up in the next generation to fill those spots. So as an organization, I would be asking myself, do my policies around work from home, do they inhibit my competitiveness in attracting top talent or do they accentuate it? Now, I think Tesla's a bit of a unique situation in that they're a big brand, very popular. They're probably not going to realize a significant loss of applications as a consequence of this shift. But if I'm company X and I don't have a, a billionaire CEO behind me, I don't have the public recognition and, and my cars aren't ubiquitous now in most streets across North America, right. I might have a harder time staffing vacancies if I take more of a harder line on these things. So I think to your point, Matt, it's a really difficult line to walk, but it's about being clear on what's your path understanding the trickle-down effects, and then just committing to that path going forward. Yeah, and I was unaware of the data that you referenced in and around productivity, and I would think that that creates a a better foundation to justify uh, or at least put business owners and leaders at ease uh, about the decision to offer that kind of flexibility because people are responsible, they appreciate the, you know, and they pay back that that trust with loyalty and productivity. And it's nice that that, that that continues to pan out. Now, at the same time, my understanding is that the, uh, you know, the, uh, as cliche as it's become great resignation is at least as much in full effect now as it's been throughout the entire pandemic. So uh, whether we're still in it or not, however you might describe it, uh, but, but the shift continues to occur. Uh, Why do you think that even after all this time, um, just trend-wise, that the uh, the resignation is still going so strong. It was happening 10 years before the pandemic. It was increasing in the U.S. labor market specifically every single year, with the exception of 2020, when there was a pandemic and most people were thinking about, this isn't the time to find a new job. Every single year, turnover increased. The amount of people who voluntarily left their organizations increased year over year. Now, there's a lot of reasons why that could be attributed. I think part of it is the discussion we're having, which is around work-life balance. There is increasing amount of pressure on all of us to juggle whether it's childcare considerations, elder care considerations, longer commutes, more challenging work environments, health issues, other personal issues. Like it's, it's very difficult to juggle it. I mean, Matt, I'm old enough to remember a world where they didn't have cell phones in the workplace, where we didn't have Blackberries, where... When you left the work at the end of the day, you left your computer at the office and you said hello to it again the following morning. And if somebody called you during non-work hours, they called you on your personal home phone and it was a five alarm fire. And then overnight we said, hey, no, we have this technology. We can, everyone can be connected all the time. Isn't that amazing? And I'll be honest, when I first got my BlackBerry, however, 15 years ago, it was like, yeah, now I can check my emails at home. And it took took me about 48 hours to realize Oh yeah, I can check my emails yeah, at not a good home. Thing. That is great. So I think that's driving part of it is people are looking for workplaces that better fit their values, better fit their cultures. And because of the aforementioned shifts in the labor market landscape, where it's now very much become a candidate's market, not necessarily employer's market in most cases, people vote with their feet. And 
that's part of it. The other part of it, Matt, which is not talked about very often is that in most cases, if you're in an organization for longer than two years, you fall behind the market salary for your position because you're getting a 3% increase, a 4% increase. But as wages continue to rise in the external market, right. it's actually advantageous for people to jump around from company to company. I received my largest increases in salary when I left company A for company B, right. and company B for company C, even though I was a high performer and on a career track and on a fast track to you know, being an executive and getting very well compensated in my organization, they couldn't justify giving me a 15% pay increase or a 20% pay increase. Right. It was three and a half because I was a high performer. So I think that's part of it. I also just think that we're moving into a generational alignment where, and I'm one of the oldest millennials on the planet. I was born in the early eighties. So I kind of spent most of my time early in my career with baby boomers and gen Xers, and now spend most of my time with millennials and gen Z. We have a different view of work. Work for us isn't a job. It's very much a business. And we manage our careers. Like we manage, you'd manage a business. You look for opportunities you look for great people to work with and each opportunity you have, whether it's a role in an organization or a new company is a stepping stone to something else rather than my parents' generation, which was let's join an organization. Now let's spend 30 years. Let's get that gold plated watch. Right. Let's get that pension and let's check out. Well, the reality is, and we can talk about why that shifted. Part of it is certainly the generational shifts, but part of it too, Matt, and you were around during this organizations kind of in the eighties and stuff started to take real punitive actions against employees and layoffs became commonplace. So the loyalty that organizations right. were expecting from their employees wasn't being reciprocated. Right. Went by, went so by think, the wayside. Sure. Yeah. So I think all those factors conspire to create an environment where people are there to achieve what they want to achieve. They're punching in for a good time and maybe not a long time. And therefore it's incumbent upon organizations to structure themselves in a way to get the most out of those people you know, as they join organizations understanding you may not have five or 10 plus years to work with them to extract the value from over that life cycle. Right. Yeah. You covered so many points there, Matt, you know, one of which you talked about the ad advantage of hopping around as opposed to, yeah. you know, what it's going to cost a company to replace that talent uh, in and to itself, let alone, you know, recruiting, you know, the trade-off for them, you know, it's always going to be a loss, even when it could have been a uh, you know, a, a gain for someone uh, who was compensated to stay. I never made the correlation uh, between the loss of freedom with the uh, growth of technology in and around the cell phones and things you described with what might now be this this counter um, uh, fight for freedom to you know you know get it back. You know, with the flexibility. Mm -hmm. uh, that's really interesting. You know, one of the things also. Uh, I know you speak to is, and, and certainly very relevant to everything you just mentioned, is this employee lifetime value. And uh, I'd love to talk about that and, and better for you to explain it and, and apply it here. Well, I think just on your previous point, what I would say is when organizations introduced technology and put it in the hands of workers, it was a one-way street. So work-life balance is a myth. There is no work-life balance for the majority of organizations and majority of employees. It's work 
And then if you can find balance, you find it. But they put that onus on the employee to find their own balance. But putting constraints around, well, find balance, but you need to be connected 24-7. I need to make sure that I can get a hold of you. I need to get a hold of you. And guess what? I, I, I like to email late in the evenings and on weekends. And if you don't like that, well, then I'm sorry. This isn't a good fit for you. So this concept of work-life balance to me is a bit of a misnomer. I think what's happening now is people are asking for the flexibility that was promised when we, we went down this path, but wasn't ever actually provided. And technology is a wonderful thing. I, I lead a digital transformation consultancy. I'm a big believer that technology can make work better, can make life better. And that requires thoughtful strategy, program management, and ultimately leadership to make sure that we don't use these tools as an excuse to take advantage and exploit people, right. which is what it can often turn into right. if we don't put those constraints in place. Yeah, they come with boundaries. Right? And they that's come part, with boundaries. That's part of the, the culture that has to be set. Otherwise, if you cross those lines, you know, you're heading into uh, you know, a net negative of what it is that you try to do. And it, it, it is. It's a tough balance for employees, maybe even greater tougher balance for leaders uh, about mm -hmm. how to implement that well and, and you know, not offend people and you know, strike the balance with accountability. Um, so thank you. Thanks for acknowledging that. Uh, but I am curious about when you talk about employee lifetime value, mm -hmm. it's almost counterintuitive to what you just said. Well, people can only stay, they're only going to stay for two years because, you know, it's, yep. it's to their advantage to leave. Um, what are your thoughts here? So employee lifetime value is a term that's been coined, a term that's been coined about a few years ago. And it's been circling around kind of my, you know, purview for like the last two or three years and actually came out of result of some work by an individual at Greenhouse. They're an applicant tracking technology based in the United States. And their assertion was that we should measure the value that an employee provides to their organization during their time in the, during their time at employed in that company. Now the term was borrowed from a marketing phrase, customer lifetime value, which is an expression of how much value a customer is going to provide to an organization over their lifetime. So think about the example of like McDonald's, for example. McDonald's has very sophisticated calculations that says, Matt Zinman visits our restaurants on this frequency. He brings this many people. So we can project over his lifetime, he's going to provide this much revenue to McDonald's globally. And they make calculations based on that. They make decisions on real estate based on that. And they do it at macro. They've been sophisticated in this area for many, many, many years. Hmm. But it's not just McDonald's. It's most marketing organizations will measure customer lifetime value. Now, the, I've said for the last five years publicly that I believe marketing and HR should be blended. And the reason I say that is because it's in, uh, inside voice, outside voice. But where it's different in an organizational context is marketing is a profit center. HR is a cost center, right? And therefore they're treated very differently from their organizations in terms of the funding they receive, the resources that they're allocated, and ultimately the chances people are willing to take. It's much easier to make a business case for a marketing campaign that might drive top line revenue than to spend extra money on an HR technology that's going to cost you more money. So I share that because employee lifetime value is an expression of the employee's value that they provide during their time in the organization. And because of the aforementioned shift in work habits, we no longer have 15, 20, 25 plus years to extract the value from that employee. The contributions that they're going to make are going to occur in a much shorter window. So it's incumbent upon organizations to acknowledge that and then work on things like speed to productivity, which is for me is an expression of how fast does it take 
for an employee to go from day one into being a fully contributing member of the team. It might take three months. It might take 12 months. But if you're averaging two years of tenure with your employees and it takes 12 months to get somebody to speed, then that means that you're going to have only their peak performance for at most 12 months, assuming they don't see a regression in performance as they leave the organization, which often occurs. And when you consider that with the investment the company makes in the employee to hire them, to train them, to orient them to their job, you have to factor those things in. And for organizations now, if they have a situation where they're investing more in hiring, training, developing, than they are in the value that somebody provides, it's a recipe for disaster. So employee lifetime value for me is a, is a method of expressing that and having those difficult conversations around how do we work with employers to set the conditions so that people can do their best work. Got it. Well, now I'm a little bit out of my depth on, on some of the points that you're making, particularly in terms, well, maybe not particularly, you'll tell me, but in terms of what comes to mind around KPIs, um, mm-hmm. As key performance indicators, whether and to what extent that applies organizationally, but even now there's this crossover with KPIs to try and assign to value, cross-referencing that with the trend in and around hybrid work and technology in order to even assess that value. A simple question, Matt, what are your thoughts here? So just so I'm clear on the question, we're talking about the KPIs, KPIs. right? I mean, when you're talking about lifetime value and you're you're looking to uh, integrate those metrics in order to assess it. um, And, and while on the marketing side, that's something that's been, uh, you know, science uh, uh, proven for some years. Um, I don't know if McDonald's predicted that I would be eating better some years back and they're not hearing mm. from me. But, uh, but in this case, in and around uh, the individual, how, how does that apply? It's a good question because the numbers are noisy and they're noisy in marketing too. They've just been around for longer, so they're accepted. So let's look at some of the key metrics that employers might look at when they're assessing the value of their employee. They look at things like what's the cost in time to hire a new person. So you don't just post a job on one day and fill it that that same afternoon, especially in knowledge-based roles. It could take weeks or months to find the right person, the right skills, to do the interviewing, to go through that entire process. There's There's an investment of time and dollars in that part of the process before the person's even selected. Now, the moment they're selected, there's another investment that we're making in the in the employee, which is laptop, cell phone, uh, training materials. Um, There could be an onboarding guide. There could be several weeks of on-the-job training where they're paying a trainer's wages and paying for an employee's wages. There's this path where employees are creeping up to being fully productive. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that path can be short and it can be long. And a lot of times it comes down to intentionality and the complexity of the role. So as organizations look at maximizing the value proposition, they should be looking to the steps and the actions and the activities that they can be undertaking that would accelerate that as fast as possible. And then as they get to full productivity, the next challenge becomes how do we sustain it and how do we elongate it? This isn't about exploitation. This is not a a return back to the industrial revolution where we're making people be forced servitude. This is about a knowledge-based economy against the backdrop, as you mentioned, of the Great Recession where people can leave whenever they want. How do we incent people to provide their best during their, as long as we possibly can in the organization? And how do we get them to stay? 
because every month that they stay delivers positive value to the organization and to the employee and makes that earlier investment we made in their hiring, their training, and their onboarding more relevant and less of a percentage of the overall value. So it, 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 it incents organizations to think about retention, to think about engagement, to think about those elements. So KPIs could include turnover. They could include employee engagement. They could include productivity, which for some roles like sales, quite easy to measure against KPIs. Other roles like graphic designers might be more challenging to measure. So then it becomes a conversation around outputs and less about inputs. So I think it's it's an inherently difficult conversation, but this is why we have to frame it in economic terms because if we don't, it becomes this qualitative mushy conversation that's been going on for 30 years where it's, organizations don't have a full appreciation of the opportunity costs of not doing this well. Right. I think that also organizations in in compensation with the demand for flexibility now have that much more of an incentive to make Mm -hmm. this organizational change to to, to unmuddy these waters as you're describing in order to, to get at what's going to make them sleep better at night for, you know, everyone they're paying to do uh, what it is they're, they're expecting them to achieve. Um, such an interesting conversation, one we can go very much in depth with, but I would like to uh, make sure we cover a few other things because you have so many trends that you're tracking, uh, certainly with some selfish motives. I focus a lot of my effort on well-being in the workplace. There are a couple of things that you speak to on your trend list around wellness as a competitive advantage, around high-performing cultures and what, what are the supports that they need in place in order to do that. Um, it's, it's somewhat of an open-ended question, but Matt, what's your, what's your perspective here on well-being in the workplace now? Not to sound too nerdy, but I I put this in scientific terms and I do this map because I'm talking to an audience that includes CEOs and board members and CFOs, where if we have a conversation about the morality in this, in this debate, it's morality for some of those individuals is an opportunity, but it's not the driving decision around what they do in their businesses. So for me, I look at the science and the science says that there's a clear link between intrinsic motivation, discretionary effort, and productivity. And let me explain what that means. So intrinsic motivation is the motivation that comes from within. It's that internal drive, that internal fire, which by the way, you have to have in spades if you're going to be an entrepreneur. It doesn't get influenced by carrot and stick. It doesn't get influenced when your boss says you have to work harder or here's a, here's a bonus. It's the work that comes, the, the motivation that comes from within. Right. The internal engine. Internal engine. The internal engine drives discretionary effort. Now, discretionary effort is the work that people will do beyond what is absolutely required to keep their jobs. And we all know people in organizations. And Matt, we talked a bit about working in the office, out of the office. We all know employees that spend 50 hours a week in the office and get nothing done. So being present in the office right. isn't, an equi- isn't an equivalency to working hard. Though the perception is when you're there, you're committed, you're working hard doing those things. But we all know examples of people who just put in the bare minimum and then punch the clock and go home. And productivity. Somebody with a greater degree of intrinsic motivation is going to deliver and want to deliver discretionary effort, which in turn will raise their productivity. Organizations need to understand that they play a critical role in that formula, that if they don't create conditions in their organizations that talk to things like wellness and mental health and career succession 
that people will not be as intrinsically motivated and therefore deliver less discretionary effort and therefore deliver less productivity. There are countless stories of organizations that have failed in part because they've seen declining performance from their employee base. And the, the sad thing is that in those cases, most organizations overreact and they become, they actually default to what we talked about earlier with Elon Musk. They default right. to command and control style. Right. I'm going to compel people to work more hours. I'm going to reduce my workforce, but increase the workload. And I'm going to force people to do more work. Well, that will work in the short term. Right. And those, those results will occur in the short term and they'll occur in the medium to long term with people who are not good at setting boundaries or do not feel that they have the agency but they're doing so because they're being compelled. And ultimately, when the foot comes off the gas, right. people can't sustain that forever. We've, we've seen rising examples of, men, of mental illness. We've burnout. seen rising examples of burnout. Right. We've seen that these, these are consequences of people being put in constraints that they just simply can't handle. And as a consequence of that, organizations need to be mindful of the impact that they're having in everybody else's lives. And I'm not saying create a country club environment. I've worked in organizations, including my own, that are very accountability driven. Organizations need to have results. In many cases, they need to make money. All that is very, very fair. We need to find the balance, though, between achieving those outcomes and also looking after our people. Because as I mentioned earlier, if we're hoping to get the right kind of employee lifetime value proposition, the easiest way to do that is to elongate somebody's time in the organization. And the easiest way to get somebody to stay is to treat them well. It's really simple, but we seem to lose it and lose ourselves along the way. And that ultimately for me is why I think wellness is a competitive advantage. The organizations that do this well will be able to provide and realize more employee lifetime value. They will be able to have stronger retention of their employees. So they don't lose things like institutional knowledge and innovation and teamwork, all those things that go away when you're turning your team all the time. They'll be able to have an advantage that over the long term will ultimately put them in better stead against their competitors that may not choose to do that. Right. It's interesting. You know, on one hand, you talk about, uh, you know, the default of companies uh, and, uh, you know, expecting, you know, going into that patriarchal uh, culture. And, and then I, I know in and around the Great Resignation, uh, a high percentage of employees say, well, my company could have kept me if. Mm -hmm. And uh, a, a lot of, uh, you know, at the top of that list is a, is a, a, a toxic culture uh, mm -hmm. is, uh, it, you know, I guess on the other side of that decision. That's where it evolves to. And yet I, at, at this point, because wellness and, and well-being programming is so uh, imperative, uh, certainly as a, an underlying pandemic of what everyone continues to, to go through and, and shift, uh, how the data at this point, is it, is it still too early to show what uh, uh, companies investing in these areas are yielding? I mean, it's it, what you're saying, of course, is very common sense. I think everyone knows this intrinsically. Show you care, people are loyal, and they'll yep. reward you as an employer. Uh, but we're also talking about KPIs. And so is there something that you're seeing that's assigned um, really is making a business case around the wellness investment for more companies to uh, see the value in doing that? Here's the sad thing, Matt. There are countless scientific papers and articles written by Harvard Business Review and Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine 
that talk about this, that point to stats and data that show an employee's engagement delivers greater productivity, greater innovation, greater customer success. The data's out there. What's lagging is we're so used to operating in a singular way that we can lose sight of what's happening around us. And it happens in, in most cases, Matt, I don't think it's malicious. I think it's a consequence of lots of pressure and people know what they know and they grew up in a certain environment and it's hard to make that change. The reason I talk about this conversation in scientific terms and in economic terms is because it is good business. Like this is not about us holding hands and you know dancing around the fields talking about good intentions, although that's part of it. This is about what's good for business and good for your organization. So you have a financial, a fiduciary, in fact, responsibility to do this very well. So when I've sat on boards where I have that fiduciary responsibility, I stress this point because I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't point out the fact that if we don't treat people well, we as an organization are going to incur extra costs. Matt, we talked about this earlier. You mentioned this in passing. The cost to replace a knowledge worker today is 1.5 times their salary. Do the math. It's easier to bring somebody along and keep them in an organization. It's more cost-effective. It's better for your work environment. It's better for knowledge retention and customer retention. It's better for innovation. There's no downside right. to retention of an employee. Right. And the hard and the numbers are hard. We're not talking hard numbers. numbers. Yeah, we're not talking dollars. You know, soft, science. Right. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, from my vantage point, I'm looking for employers that are one of two things. They're either uh, best places to work type people first companies that prove yep. it by actually putting these kinds of things in place, or they are the toxic cultures that, mm. you know, reach that pain point so, uh, so, so badly that they, they must act on it. And I'm not, I, I'm not sure how much in between there is, uh, but hopefully, you know, the, the gap's going to close as, uh, you know, people like you in a leadership role are uh, the, the, the voice of reason in advancing that. So thank you. Now, Matt, we are going to be moving on. Um, I, I look at how you and I are, are, are interacting. Wow, the time just you know flies. Is there anything mm-hmm. in and around uh, all the areas that we're covering, uh, you know, a, a bow to tie here, where do you feel as though we've really, uh, you know, nailed the core issues? I'll just make one other point, which I think is, you know, I work in a digital transformation consultancy and a lot of times organizations will engage us because they feel like they need extra capacity in their technology stack. Things aren't working. They need better systems. They need systems to talk to each other. They need better data. Those are generally the reasons people engage us. Here's the beauty of what we do because we help them with their technologies and we help them with their data and we help create synergies within the ways they work and the tools they work with, it ultimately creates better wellness as well. It's like a Trojan horse of good intentions. We can actually help companies save money, become more efficient and treat their employees better. I think a lot of people have this misnomer that you have to choose. You don't have to choose. You just have to be intentional about the tools that you select, the programs that you develop, engaging your employees and bringing in the right partners to help you along the way. Yeah, well summarized, and certainly, I mean, I think it's easy to see. I, I mean, it, sure, it's an investment, but that technology, especially now, is the backbone that's necessary in order to track all of these things, in order to justify all the things that we talked about putting into place, and otherwise they're flying blind. So, uh, Matt, we're going to get to your insights to live by. I'm very interested to hmm. hear uh, the life lessons that you uh, have have 
thought to and are will be sharing. But first, we do have a, a segment on the show where we like to get a little bit of insights about you. Uh, on screen, you see the insights about Matt Burns. We have a wheel that we're going to spin. We're going to see where it lands, and uh, let's let's learn something or two about you. And here we go. Now, Matt, I will tell you that uh, everything on this wheel is answered only once by any guest. You happen to be getting the question, what's the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? I went on a company retreat once where we were given one of those like kind of like um, fear factor type challenges. Nice. And there was a, a large selection of beetles that we were uh, tasked with as a team eating. And I don't have a, a, um, a soft stomach. So I was like, yeah, give me the beetles. Uh, so I had a, a, a quite a few beetles that afternoon in the hot summery day. Well, well said. I mean, look, we all catch them when we're running. We catch, you know, it's, it happens. Picnics. It's not that unusual. But to proactively do so, Matt, it's disgusting. Now, um, <laughs> sorry to say. <laughs> okay, next to your question is beach, lake, mountain, or ski slope? Ooh. Beach, lake, mountain, or ski slope? You can only choose one. I would have a hard time. I, yeah. I am having a very, I'll say mountain uh, because you don't have ocean. So ocean would have been my choice, but mountain's my well, second lake, choice. Lake, lake and, I mean, beach, lake and beach. Yeah, it's about being on the water. I'll go with mountain. Let's okay. do mountain because right. I love the feeling of being above and that serenity and that peace and that calmness. Right. It really puts in perspective how small we are compared to how big this planet is, I love being in the mountains. You go for the existential moment. I like it. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I mean, these questions have gone by quickly and I'm, I'm very curious. There's one on here I went over to land on. We usually do two, but let's go. Let's see where this other one leads us. And it is interesting. Would you rather visit your great, great grandparent or your great, great grandchildren? Assuming that that, that happens kind of a it's a future past but who who would you like to who'd you like to meet i'm a history buff i would love to learn the origin stories of generations from before and just take lessons from them so i think i would go with great great grandparent i love it yeah i've been i've been waiting for this question it's been on the wheel for so long i have to say matt there was an ice hockey question i was really hoping for Mm. but it's gonna have to wait for another time my my core passion you being uh in the great white north However, yes, sir. it is time to get to your insights to live by. You can put these yeah. in any order. There are three. Matt Burns, what is your first insight to live by? Constraints drive innovation. We're going to need an explanation on that one. Certainly. The world is full of factors, constraints, considerations that ultimately will drive us to center our thinking. Uh, I'm a big believer that obstacles and challenges are opportunities. So I tend to view constraints as the practicalities of being on this planet. Gravity is a constraint. Needing to breathe oxygen is a constraint. Needing to eat and drink water is a constraint. And there are other constraints too, like budgetary constraints or time constraints or energetic constraints. And rather than throwing your hands up in the air when faced with a challenge that you don't think you can get through, Ask yourselves, how do you step back, look at the constraints, and discover what actually is the problem that you're trying to solve for or the goal that you're trying to achieve? And that'll make that process so much easier. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've never 
really quite heard it put that way. Um, I think you're still a little bit on the existential theme, which I like mm-hmm. that that vantage point. But right, it's it's so important to step back, and often we've got any number of things going on in our lives, and we feel different stresses that we never really maybe pinpoint um, constraint or circumstantial, whatever it may be, and how much easier we could just make it for ourselves. We just go through that exercise and do that. I like it. Good advice. Thank you. All right. Now over to your second insight to live by. What do you have? Health is wealth. Yeah. Yeah. Less existential, but so critical, Matt. I mean, one of the things I learned on this journey was going from a corporate employee to an entrepreneur as running my own business, there's a direct correlation between my health and my, my mental health, my physical health, my dietary health, and how I show up in my business and how my business shows up in the environment. So I picked up pretty quickly that if I was going to have a successful business, I needed to be successful from a health perspective. And for me, I've made significant investments over the last three and a half years being an entrepreneur in my health, in my fitness, in my exercise, and it's paid incredible dividends, not only in the work, but in all other parts of my life. Nice. Well, what is your thing? Are you a runner? Are you, uh, aside from being a mountain climber, I kind of, you like the top of the mountain hiking. Um, what, what's your go-to? I'm a swimmer. I love being in the water. Sure. There's something meditative about being, and I got these wonderful uh, AR goggles I put on. So I'm like a half robot, half shark in there. And I love the fact that I can have <laughs> be totally meditative and just sink into the water and the cardio is incredible. Right. I can get in the pool for 30 minutes, come out and just be wiped. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's funny. I was a big swimmer, lifeguard, all that. And I miss it. Mm-hmm. I, you're reminding me. Yes. And when uh, elsewhere, when there's a current, I recommend you swim with it. I'm just mm. add that too. All right. Now, your third insight to live by can be on a level playing field. It could be the one that if you only had one would be the one that you would share uh, where does this fall and what is your third insight to live by? Uh, there's genius in simplicity. I'm just gonna let that sit for a moment. Silence now enough. Awkward genius in simplicity. Yeah. Um, uh, let's, let's go a little deeper. What, what are you telling us? We live in a complicated time, a complicated world, a lot more going on than it's ever gone on before. And in a lot of ways, I wonder if human beings were meant for this level of stimuli, this level of stress, this level of constant bombarding of information and senses. And a lot of times, the answer is right in front of us. The answer is available to us. It's known to us. But we have a hard time parsing through all the inputs that we're getting to arrive at that answer. And what I look for often in my business with very complex transformational projects is what is, the, what is the most common sense? What is the simplest path to success? Right. And, and I think we have this tendency as, as, a, as a species, certainly as a workforce, that if we don't introduce something that's big and amazing and cutting edge and innovative, right. that somehow it has less currency. At the end of the day, if the outcome is meant to be achieved, the, the fastest path to outcome is often the best. So I'm a big fan of simplicity. I like it. It's a great lesson. Uh, I think that there is a tendency to overcomplicate uh, people think, uh, especially in a corporate environment, that that more mm-hmm. complex charts and graphs are the way to go. Uh, a heck of a lot of effort goes into them and not necessarily enough to uh, be a straighter line to the ultimate outcome that they seek. Uh, great advice. Um, and uh, also three insights to live by we've never had 
Uh, in fact, we've really rarely yes. ever crossed over in our uh, now uh, shows that are in the 80s. And always fascinated to hear what a guest brings. And you uh, should say, I, you did not disappoint. Whatever the opposite thank of that you. is. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, Matt, uh, before we wrap up here, any final words? Just want to create uh, a little space here for you. I, I will say that those interested to reach out to you will find you at bentohr.com. That's B-E-N-T-O-H-R.com. You are easy to find on LinkedIn. And um, should I give your email? You want your yeah. Email out there? Why well, the show I love notes? getting emails. Yeah, okay. Matt at bentohr.com. Reach out. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Uh, anything, final words, thoughts that you'd like to share? Your be space. kind. Yeah. yeah. Be, be kind and be patient with yourself. I think we've all gone through a really challenging two and a half, three years, and no one's come through that period of time unscathed. And I think we all could deploy a little bit more empathy inward and be a bit kinder and more patient with ourselves. I'm constantly reminding myself of that. It's tough in this world, Matt, where we're constantly so achievement focused and there's this grind and there's this hustle. And it seems like everywhere we look, if it's Instagram or Twitter or on the news that everyone's having these major successes, it's a false positive. And the reality is that everyone, for the most part, is just like you. And it's okay to have bad days. It's okay to be a little tired. It's okay to be anxious or depressed. Be kind with yourself. And be patient with yourself. And ultimately, things will work out. Yeah, you know, self-compassion is the is the core message I, I certainly gravitate toward a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you you brought it up. I'm very passionate about it. Um, I would like to add, if, if I may, um, sure. in and around self-kindness, uh, from a personal development standpoint, uh, a lot of times those of us who are self-devoted to uh, improving and enriching our, our lives – you know, we find ourselves in one place or another in and around our self-esteem and our confidence. Uh, we strive for, for, for self-love. Uh, you know, we're all in different places in life. And one of the challenges that we have with that is that it can be very nebulous. It's like I feel a certain mm-hmm. way about myself, but I don't really know how to get from here to there. And the thing that I really uh, strive in and around uh, and in and about self-kindness is that it's definitive. You're, you're either being kind to yourself or you're not being kind to yourself. And so mm-hmm. if you, if you kind of throw the, you know, throw it out there to draw the line in the sand and say, well, why be anything less than kind to myself? It's like, wow, you know, that's, that's something everyone should be able to answer in the affirmative. And it's not like we can change our thought patterns overnight, but it certainly, it, it certainly creates that, that defining line of why am I beating myself up? That's not kind to myself. Uh, and, and I think it's just a great reminder and a great takeaway uh, as a bonus insight to live by that we share uh, that, that I love as a, as a closing uh, thought for the show. So thank you, Matt Burns, for being uh, my guest and our guest. And we just covered so much uh, rich, timely detail. Uh, thank you so much for sharing uh, this much of uh, and much more of what you know. Uh, you've just made us uh, all the better for it. Thank you, Matt. Real pleasure. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Insights to Live By. Please feel welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn and Instagram and make the most of our free resources to improve your life for good at mattzinman.com. Wishing you and yours an enriching day, and we'll see you next time.